Friends, what a great song that is that we just sang. Um, And I praise God for songs that teach us biblical truth. And as we continue to study the book of Hebrews, that's all about Jesus and his sufficiency for our salvation. Uh, Come to Jesus, weary sinners. Come and buy without money. Come and buy when you're not fit to come. Come because only Jesus will do. That's the testimony of the book of Hebrews, the great letter that we've been studying. And what an appropriate song then for our time together again this morning. Turn with me there to Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 7 this morning. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of this chapter together. If you're visiting with us, we've been studying through this letter. Uh, We began at its beginning. And so we have made our way over some substantial time from chapter 1, verse 1, to where we are now this morning in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And so we seek to honor the Word of God as He gave it to us and to understand it in that form and structure. We want to know it because we believe by it we are brought to life in Jesus Christ. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one on the pew in front of you. We're going to spend a lot of time in the text, as we normally do. Hebrews is a very technical uh, letter at times, and so you will be benefited greatly, friends, if you'll find a Bible. Uh, Again, if you didn't bring one, you can look in the pew in front of you, and in that pew Bible will be on page 1004. Before we read these verses together, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to open our eyes and grant us sight. Oh God in heaven, we come to your word because we believe it is true. We believe it is your very breath breathed out into and through men as they wrote down that which you led them to write by your spirit. God, we come to your word now because we believe by it. We are shown Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the only means of our reconciliation with you and salvation unto life eternal. And so, God, we pray very simply that you would help us now as we come to study it, in spite of our sinfulness and inability. God, that you would help us to read it and to know it and to understand it as you've given it, that from it we might be brought to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 7, let's begin reading in the first verse. The writer says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, 
In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, this section is the outworking of what we read in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20. You go back there, that previous section concluded with this truth, where Jesus has gone, talking about into the presence of God as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he's now going to go on to explain in greater depth and detail what that means and to substantiate the claims that he's been making about Christ. Now, this is not new. In some way, those of you that have been a part of this study, you'll be familiar with this character. You should be familiar with this name. And to some degree, I labored back when we came to it in chapter 5, even at that point, to explain to you what it means that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And I did that so that I wouldn't have to spend so much time doing that here and I can deal with the actual story that he gives. And that is the story of when Abraham went to rescue Lot and returned victorious and was met by Melchizedek. It's the only story in the Old Testament that we have about this guy, Melchizedek, this king of Salem, that comes in Genesis 14. So I wanted to be able to spend more time dealing with that story that he appeals to and to show us how that substantiates the claims that he is making and that he's already made. But so it's important for us then to realize that this section on the great high priestly ministry of Jesus is one that has been ongoing since chapter 4, verse 14. So that if you go back there, after three and a half chapters of arguing that Jesus is better, that Jesus is superior to the angels and to the prophets of old in the previous revelations about Jesus, that Jesus is a superior um, prophet for God's people and means of salvation for God's people, that he leads them as king in a way that Moses could not. We've seen all of these superiorities. He moves at the end of chapter 4 to take up in earnest what is one of the main goals of his letter, and that is to argue for these Jewish Christians, these, these, these Christians that have come to believe in Christ out of the forms of Judaism and the priestly system there, that Jesus is a superior high priest. So he begins that argument in 4.14, where he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. And then there are some things he builds off of that. For example, let us then hold fast our confession. So this section that begins in 4.14, specifically to the topic of Jesus as great high priest, runs to the end of chapter 7. So we're coming to the end of that immediate and specific section. The interesting thing, though, is for us to remember that even in the ensuing chapters, 8, 9, and 10, there are other priestly realities that are going to be spoken of. So although he's no longer going to be making the argument that Jesus is the great high priest, how and what that means, he will have made that argument. 
He's now going to turn to the priestly realities and show them that because Jesus is a great high priest, so his ministry is superior to the priests that have come before. So that in chapters 8, 9, and even into 10, you'll have things like Jesus, as the great high priest of our faith, then offers a superior sacrifice. Jesus is the high priest then of a better covenant. Jesus then ministers in a better holy place, if you will. That is because Jesus is going to be offering his ministration, offering his service and duties in the direct presence of God, the holy of holies in heaven, not in the earthly holy of holies where the earthly priests ministered. That's all going to be the outworking of what we're arguing for here. But Let it be sufficient then for us to realize that A, this is not new, but B, this is a lengthy discussion because, friends, whether you realize it or not, there is no doctrine that is more central to your faith and to your encouragement in faith than a right understanding of the high priestly ministry of Jesus. He spends chapters of one of the most technical, theologically rich books or letters in all of Scripture chapters devoted to that one issue, and we fail to talk about it almost ever. Do you know why this topic is so central to our faith? Is so central to our continuing in that faith? Why this topic should be so important for you as a Christian? Why these chapters should matter to you, even though you are not a Jew? I'm going to give you two reasons. Number one, because you and I have big sins and big problems in our lives that result from sin. We have eternal problems. And these big sins that result in big eternal problems establish in us the need for a really big priest. And I don't mean to be too simple, but I want to use the same language. So because of the substantial nature of the sin in your life and mine, it becomes aboundingly necessary that we have established for us an understanding of the substantial nature of the priest by whom we are forgiven and reconciled to God. It is the most essential truth that we can talk about. How is man saved? It is through the person and work of Jesus. And that work is as the great high priest for the chosen people of God. Secondly, it is important to me and it should also be important to you. Because like me, you are desperately prone to wander. So that even for you Christians who understand the bigness of your sin and want to learn something of the bigness of your Savior, it is equally important to you Christians to understand the great high priestly ministry because it helps us to see that the need we have for continuing, ongoing intercession, mediation on our behalf between us and the righteous judge of creation, God Almighty, That ministry, because of the great high ministry of Jesus, continues. That we need someone to hold us fast, to secure our place in his presence, to plead our case before him. Because if it were up to us to hold or to plead, we would surely be lost. Therefore, you Christians, you also need a really great high priest Because you need a really great Savior. So the the weight and the substantial nature of our sins, 
the weight and the tendency that is significant in our hearts to walk away from Christ who has saved us and to walk back into sin. For all of these things, friend, this doctrine that is being articulated in these chapters is of paramount importance and centrality to your life in Christ and the encouragement of your faith. And so I hope that you will see as we expound these themes all the way into chapter 10, some very real benefit from them. Now, there, this is a fairly technical section. I don't want it to be too dry. I want to be very applicable to your life. I want to bring these verses to life for you in a way that is helpful. Um, and in order to do that, we're going to break down uh, the, 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 the text, this, these verses, just, I think, in the way that they're given. First, we're going to consider the office of Melchizedek. In other words, if he's going to argue that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, what office did he serve in? Okay, that's going to be a little bit of review, the office that we're told about. Then I want us to consider the presentation of Melchizedek in the Bible, because he appeals to that here, and he makes some substantial arguments from that appeal. So how is he talked about in Scripture? Then I want us to consider Melchizedek's relationship to Abraham and his descendants. And then at the end, I want to try to bring some application of all of that to what that teaches us about the priestly ministry of Jesus. So if Jesus is a priest in the order of this guy, then let us be careful to understand that the point of these verses, though we have to learn some things about Melchizedek, is not to teach us about Melchizedek. Friends, if your minds are full of truth about Melchizedek and biblically true and exegetically right things about Melchizedek, you will have been helped none. Unless you see that the point of learning about Melchizedek is because he was like Jesus. And he foreshadowed Jesus. And he teaches us about Jesus. And Jesus was a priest in this way. right? So, so we want to look at the end and see what this teaches us about Christ and how that applies to our life. So very quickly. The office then of Melchizedek. What do we learn in this passage? We've already been introduced to this. But what does he remind us about here? He says, for this Melchizedek. Now, keep in mind, we don't know much about Melchizedek from Scripture. Genesis 14 and the story that is recounted for us here. And then a quotation about him in Psalm 110. All of the other uses of this name and any discussions about this character in the biblical testimony are found in Hebrews, where we are now, all of the rest of them. So we'll see all of them. So because very little is known, we must give careful attention to the things that are known because there is great care taken in the Bible to present him in a certain way. That's why the second point of this is going to be how he is presented to us in scripture. But first, the office that he serves, this Melchizedek, one, king of Salem, two, priest of the most high God. He was an interesting figure, not in the least, because he served as a king and a priest. Now, I've already made that clear to you, but in the Old Testament, that is significant because priests were not kings and kings were not priests. And if we go back to the discussion in chapter 5 of Melchizedek, I think at least one reason, and I'm just going to give you this one, for that distinction and that reality in the Old Testament is because part of the... Part of what was required to serve rightly in the office of priest for the people of God was an ability to relate to the people of God, to be like them. So that in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, the author goes to great length to tell us in, like, for example, the end of verse 11, that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, having been made like us. 
Okay, taking on flesh, becoming a brother with us and identifying with us as humans in that way. Born under the curse of sin, for example. And then he takes that teaching from chapter 2 and he applies it to the priestly ministry of Jesus, this office that Jesus served in, in chapter 5, when he talked about uh, him being made like us, um, like four, you can pick it up like in 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but yet is without sin. Right, so, so identification with God's people, the idea that Christ um, is not somehow above us. Well, that, that intrinsic reality that's necessary for serving as a priest is a problem if you're a king. Why? Because the king is not someone who's a part of the people. He's someone who's over the people. He's distinct from the people. He is superior to the people. He did not come out from among them and was not just like them. There was a, you could not just approach the king. You could not be in his presence. There was this grand distinction, I, th- I think, in terms of who he was and what he did, the office that he served, his um, economic status, if you will. Everything about the king was different. So there was this distinction then that priests were not kings and kings were not priests. The interesting thing, though, is we know from the New Testament that Jesus Christ and what was told about him in the old, that Jesus Christ serves as both the prophet of God's people and their king. It is not, should not be surprising then that we learn right off the bat that part of the argument that's being made is he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek because Melchizedek was a king priest. He was the king of this land of Salem, this Canaanite land. Whatever heritage and lineage he knew, we do not know. But we know that he was king over this land, and we know that he was a priest, as it says, to the Most High God. You see that there in verse 1. And it is this king-priest that Jesus' priestly order is ascribed unto. But what else then, point two, does the Bible tell us about this Melchizedek. Well, as I said, we don't know much, but the Bible is very careful not in what it says, but in the way that it says it about Melchizedek. It is very intentional. It is very weighty. It is very loaded. And thus, it is very worthy of our careful attention. So just a few things here. Number one, he is Melchizedek by translation of his name. What does it teach us? Look at what it says. So Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything, and then it is going to clarify. You see this here in verse 2. He is first, so it jumps right in to subordinating Abraham to him. He is first, first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. This is very interesting language, isn't it? Because who does the Old Testament and New teach us explicitly is the king of righteousness? When you think about what about Psalm 72 that we read at the beginning of this, uh, at the beginning of this service? Let me turn back there. Psalm 72, as it is anticipating the, the king that would come and sit on David's throne, it says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. That is to this king. Why? May he judge your people with righteousness. Down in verse 7, in his days may the righteous flourish and may peace abound. We're going to see that coming in just a moment. Who is, biblically speaking, from this text and many, many others, like Isaiah chapter 9, I'm going to read later, 
the king of righteousness. It's Jesus. But it is also Melchizedek, whose name literally means king of righteousness. It's not insignificant, this messianic language. Secondly, the Bible tells us, not only by translation of his name, but translation of where he was king, king of Salem, that is literally translated king of peace. The point is that Salem is from the same word from which we get shalom or peace in the Bible, right? So he's king of peace. Who is the king of peace? Well, when you think about the declaration of the king's birth in, say, Luke, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among the children of God, peace. Who is coming to reign with peace and establish peace in the hearts of sinners? It is King Jesus, but Melchizedek is mentioned as the king of peace. Now, if we think about this story specifically, as I said, in Genesis 14, you have Abraham going out to save Lot, and he comes back from the Canaanite lands, and he's approached by Melchizedek. But it's interesting, we're told that he's the king of Salem and that he's a priest under the Most High God. But in the text of the Bible, very uncharacteristically, there is no genealogy, as it tells us here, even in Hebrews chapter 7, it reminds us of this truth. Look at what it says in verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy. That does not mean that he did not have a father or mother. He was a human. But it means that the biblical testimony about him, uncharacteristically so, did not give us these things. So that in the Old Testament and even in the New, you think about the genealogy of Christ that's given at the beginning and the opening of the gospel accounts. Um, one's heritage, whether they were a king or an officer of some sort, their heritage, who they were, where they came from, those things qualified them to serve. And so it was extremely important that those things were recounted. The beginning of their office and service would be recorded and the ending or death of their office and service would be recorded explicitly so in the Bible, but not so with Melchizedek. This king of righteousness, this king of peace that appears to Abraham in chapter 14, as if literally so from nowhere. We're not given a father, a mother. We're not given a a genealogy. What does that help us to see? That unlike the priests of the Old Testament, who must be out of the lineage and line of Levi, of Aaron, all of them served as priests, and only those men served as priests. That Melchizedek was not a priest like that. He was not a priest from men, appointed by men, according to the way that men appointed these priests and that God appointed them over them. It was not an appointment like that. It was different. It was not by his lineage. It's not because of who he was. The idea is we've already seen it is by divine appointment, right? So when he appears in Genesis 14, we're not given any genealogy. Also, the Bible, as I said, does not give any testimony regarding his birth or his death. So in the genealogy, not only does it not tell us who his father and mother were, it does not tell us when his, um, when his reign began or ended. It does not tell us when he was born or that he died. That does not mean that he wasn't born and that he lived forever. What it means is it's painting a literary picture for us that like Jesus, Jesus is a priest forever. It's not constrained by time. Right? It's a literary device that's being employed by the author, very carefully so. Friends, the Bible is, is beautiful. The Bible is complicated. The Bible is a, 
is an intricately woven literary device, God is the best author. You have writers that you like that blow your mind with their creativity and their literary prowess. They have nothing on God. I mean, just, if nothing else, friends, be astounded at the beauty. All that was foreshadowed in Melchizedek about Jesus Christ was so. And we can now see in Christ and understand his office as priest in the New Testament through the lens of what we now understand from Melchizedek and all that it prophesied about him. That's a beautiful reality, friend. So we're not told anything about his genealogy, how he was appointed to be priest by his lineage. We're not told anything about his birth or his death, but that he was a priest forever, the same way that Jesus was. And then we are also told here in this text that he resembles the Son of God. You see that there at the end of verse 3. Having neither beginning of days or end of life, but resembling Jesus. And thus he continues a priest forever. So Melchizedek then was a type, a, a, a type, a shadow of Jesus Christ. But let us be very careful when we think about typology. It's very popular. Don't forget that in order for there to be a type, there must be a pre-existent reality. So he's not foreshadowing a Jesus that was to come only, right? It's not so much that Jesus looks like Melchizedek as it is that Melchizedek looked like Jesus, who was, he just had not yet come completely or come in the flesh. He was not yet to be revealed. But simply because Jesus had not yet been revealed temporally, historically, did not mean that Jesus was not. So Melchizedek is reflecting for us, even these thousands of years ago, the Jesus that was and who was to come. He is a type. He is a shadow. You can't have a shadow of something if there is not a something. Jesus was projecting a shadow, pointing to himself in the fullness of his revelation in the New Testament. We see this clearly again in places like Luke 1, the announcement of his birth. It says, he will reign forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. The same language that's used here about Melchizedek, that's what it's teaching us about Jesus. Now, what does the author here tell us about his relationship to Abraham and to the descendants of Abraham? It's pretty interesting as well. Um, He tells this story about going to save Lot and Lot had been overtaken and taken bondage or captive. And so Abraham goes to get him. And as he returns, he encounters Melchizedek, um, this king priest of Salem. But the interesting thing is that Abraham, we are told, is blessed by him. Look at what happens He met Abraham, verse 1, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. That is, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And you see this language, it permeates all ten of these verses where even it gets down to the end. Clearly, the inferior is blessed by the superior, verse 7. It's making an allusion to this truth, this not insignificant reality that when Abraham returns, Father Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, returns and is blessed by another. Now, if you know your Old Testament, that language should be a bit surprising to you as it would have been for these Jews. That the king of Salem, who we know very little about, blessed Abraham. Why? First of all, because Abraham was the one 
who had been given the promises. You see that language here. The one that had been given the promises toward the end. He is the one that God entered into a covenant with in which God blessed him and then promised that Abraham would be the means of blessing for the world. So Abraham is not the one in God's providence said to be receiving blessings from men, but to be the one through whom men would be blessed. So Abraham has this very high place of significance in redemptive history and God's plan for those realities. Yet, there is one above Abraham because even the one whom God promised would be the blessing for all nations, there came a one who to Abraham blessed him. You see, this would have probably blown the minds of the Jews that would have had such a high esteem for Father Abraham, for the patriarch of their faith. And that language is used here in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch ended up giving a tenth. This guy, he was so great, and we see his superiority to Abraham, that he's better than Abraham, because in the providence of God, he comes, he appears, and he blesses Abraham, who is to be the blessing of the nations. But not only does he bless him, the second thing that it teaches us about his relationship to Abraham and all of his descendants is that Abraham gave him a tithe. What does it say? Back up at the beginning. He met him. He blessed him in verse 2. And to him, that is to Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. And that's astonishing. So it was by the law in the Old Testament that the people of God, those descendants of Levi who benefited from the priestly ministry of the Levites, by God's institution, that they gave a tenth of everything to the Levites, to the Levitical priesthood. That tenth was to be used in a, in a various and sundry ways. It was used to support the priests and their families. It was used in the worship of God. It was used in the upkeep of the temple. It's not unlike the money that you give here that supports me and my family and the facilities and the ministries that our church enjoys and performs. But they were commanded to give a tenth and thereby seen as in some spiritual sense inferior in the providence of God. The people that benefited from the ministry of the Levitical of the Levites, from the sons of Aaron, they gave a tenth as a, as a submission, as a willful honoring of what God was doing through those men in their midst. And it is then Abraham, the father of their faith, the patriarch of Israel, who shows up to this king of Salem, who is also then the king priest of the Most High God, and he gives to him a tenth. And he was not a Levite. He was not a brother. That's the point of what it says here down at the end of verse 5. The people that uh, they gave a tithe, they took a tithe, the Levites did from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also were descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, received a tithe from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So he's serving as a priest without needing this lineage. He was not of this descent. It's very interesting what it also teaches us about all of the descendants. That Levi, by God's appointment, the Levitical priests that received the tithe from the people and had this established positional authority over them, submitted themselves willfully to this king of Salem by extension of Abraham's action. What does it say? Verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself 
who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, that is to Melchizedek, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. He wasn't even around. But because of the significance of this action, what's he saying? He's saying Melchizedek, simply friends, is better than Abraham, and he's better than Levi and all of those that descended after him. And like Levi to the Israelites, he was worthy of a tithe and of their honor for all of them and able to bless them. Now, we come to the last point then, number four. Because I don't want this just to be a historical lesson on Melchizedek. What does this teach us about Jesus, really? What, how does this help you? 2017, Western culture, Americanized folk, no matter where you're from, Christians in this day who have not, by and large, most of you, I think, have not come out of Judaism and are not experiencing oppression by your Jewish friends and heritage and are not in any way probably tempted to go back to Judaism. How does this help you? Well, friends, it does. I've got four applications, not in any certain order. Four applications that grow out of, I think, all of the things that I've articulated. Understanding that Melchizedek is a type of Jesus, a a foreshadowing of Christ, and that Christ then is a priest differently from the priests out of among men, but is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Number one, it teaches us that all truth and grace and hope that was foreshadowed and prophesied in the Old Testament that it has been realized and brought to fulfillment only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That everything the Old Testament looked forward to, that all of the hopes and dreams of God's people at this time, that all of the systems, that all of the priests, that even Melchizedek, that all that they looked forward to has been realized in Jesus. Therefore, Therefore, we no longer hope in that which has been promised as they did, but in that which has been given. Friends, that changes the game. That changes your daily walk as you labor in the struggles and difficulties of this life in God's providence. Your hope is no longer in the promise, but in the promise fulfilled but in the promise realized, but in the promise given because Jesus has come and he has done for us what we could not do. And he continues now in heaven after his ascension to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Praise be to God that all of the hope of the Old Testament people of God has been realized in the person and work of Jesus. And secondly, that there is no greater encouragement to endure in the difficulties of our life than to know that our hope for eternity has been accomplished in Christ. And now he efficaciously applies all of the benefits that God has promised to us through the continuing ministry of his office. That's a long way of saying, friends, not only that he is, but because he lives and because he continues, he holds us. So that the benefits of God continue to flow to me, not because of my obedience, not because of my keeping of the law, not because of a ceremonial system, not because of any established earthly thing, but because the Lord Jesus Christ in bodily form having been made like me, a man, now sits before the throne of God, continually interceding on my behalf and keeping me there. 
Friends, it becomes the basis of our security unto life eternal in Christ. Number two, it means that the efficacy of Christ's office, that that is his ability to do what a priest should do in terms both of mediation, mediating between the wrath of God and against our sin and intercession, going before God on our behalf and taking us there, that this these acts to be performed by a priest, that he is more effective, that the efficacy of Christ serving in this office supersedes that of any man. Now listen very carefully because I don't want to hurt your feelings. I must say, and I cannot leave this without imploring you, that that necessarily means you do not need a priest among men. You don't. And I know that there are quote, Christian churches that continue that practice today. And my intention is not to throw unnecessary boulders of guilt at them, but simply to teach all that the word of God says. And friends, secondly, if we look to a priest among men, you cannot do so and be looking to Jesus. For to look to a man is to deny the efficacy of what Jesus has done. So because Jesus can do what no man can do because he is a priest unlike any man after the order of Melchizedek, then to look to any man is to deny and to profane the ability of Christ, the efficacy of his office in holding you secure before God Almighty in the heavens, and to trust in a man for what you say Jesus cannot accomplish. Woe to you and me if we enter into that practice and affirm that idea and then have to stand before God and give an account of it. Friends, we trample upon Christ and the grace of God expressed to us in him if we do not reject that doctrine and idea wholly. It is not simply that you don't need a priest, but it's okay if you want to go there. Friends, you don't need it because he can't do it. So to do it is to look to the one who can't and to deny the one who can. They are mutually exclusive. Thirdly, all that we learn about Christ being according to the order of Melchizedek um, in his relation to Abraham, I think just a point of application here, listen very carefully. If it was fitting for Abraham to honor and submit to Melchizedek, even Abraham, then a pattern is thereby established that we who are not Abraham, are at all times to seek to honor Christ to whom Melchizedek pointed and to submit to him as the only true king of righteousness and peace. Now I say that to say that even Abraham himself, the patriarch of Israel, the father of the nations, the one to whom the promises had been given and through whom the nations would be blessed, even Abraham himself found such a duty to honor Christ so as to give him a tenth of everything that he had, if that is so true, then there is no measure of privilege in my life or yours that exempts us from our Christian duty to honor God and to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, both as our king and our priest. If it was good enough for Abraham, if it was necessary for Abraham, friends, then it must also be for us. Lastly, and then I will close. Because Christ is a Melchizedekian great high priest, as I said at the first, our salvation and security are absolutely sure.
Kent Hughes, in his commentary on these verses, he put it this way. The implications of this truth for the Jewish church, as it bobs on the ominous tides of the first century, were readily apparent. An eternal Melchizedekian king-priest has both secured their righteousness and peace, and now devotes continual prayer for the working of both qualities in their lives. This means they will survive the tides. Amen. The scripture teaches us that in Jesus Christ, all of the promises of God to his people are yes and amen. Friends, where is your hope? Where is your heart? If they are anchored in Christ, they shall never be moved. But if they are found in anything else, surely they will be swept away and lost. Let's look to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this timely word. Uh, Thank you for the truths that it teaches us about the ministry of Christ on our behalf and that as our great high priest, he has accomplished for us and continues to accomplish for us and apply things to our lives that we could never otherwise accomplish and have applied. God, help us today to think carefully about Jesus as our great high priest and help us look only to him for the justification and salvation and reconciliation with you that we long for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.